Okay, everybody, welcome to episode one of our Mind Hunter podcast. I'm Doug. I'm joined by Peter. Welcome, Doug. Welcome, and um, this is uh, this is uh, our our third podcast. And if you're interested and enjoy what you hear today, we encourage you to check out Popcorn Drink Combo, which is our movie podcast, as well as uh, our uh, From the Earth to the Moon podcast regarding the uh, famed HBO miniseries of the same name. But today we're going to be uh, talking about uh, season one, episode one of Mind Hunter. Uh, the Netflix television show, which uh, really uh, is a uh, somewhat fictionalized version of the career of uh, FBI agent John Douglas. Right. Did you read Based these on, books? Yeah, I think we both read them back in, many years ago when they in came the out. Yeah, in the 90s. I read, I think I read all of his books. I even read his books uh, that weren't really part of the main Mindhunter series. Like he did a separate book on the Unabomber that I read. I don't think I read that one, but he actually, you know, the, the, I think it was his, his first book was called Mindhunter. Correct. Um, and uh, basically we talked about most of the history of how the behavioral uh, science unit, the profiling unit was built. Yeah, and it's sort of it's sort of a mix of him talking about ca- like famous cases, his personal biography, you know, and how they figured out sort of the dawn of modern criminal behavioral science. Right, and this this episode basically shows the very beginning of the uh, this just the very beginning of them starting to conceive of creating a profiling unit. And, you know. Uh, I think a lot of us kind of first became aware of John Douglas without knowing who we were being aware of from Silence of the Lambs, right? Because in Silence of the Lambs, the Jack Crawford character played by Scott Glenn right. is uh, explicitly modeled on John Douglas. Right. So that he- was where I kind of first became aware of, you know, anything about behavioral science at the FBI. And I imagine a lot of people knew nothing before they saw Silence of the Lambs. Right. And it's portrayed as sort of a prestigious um, wing of the FBI, sort of a story department to try to get into that Clarice Starling really is, that's all she wants to do. She aspires to it. Right. And she spends a fair bit of Silence of the Lambs trying to get on Jack Crawford's good side. Yeah. Um. You know, I remember when uh, when Mindhunter came out, um, I stumbled across it in a in a hospital gift shop. I was in a hospital gift shop thumbing through magazines, and I saw it. And I literally, this is true. It sounds ridiculous, and it, it is ridiculous, but it's true. I read the entire book cover to cover, standing in this hospital gift shop for over a couple of hours. I just started reading it, and then I looked up, and I was about halfway through the book. And I was in the back and nobody could see me. And I just stood there very quietly. And the next thing I knew, I'd read the entire book. And I just sort of gingerly put it back on the shelf and ran out. <laughs> nice. <laughs> taking, taking pains not to damage the spine. <laughs> anyway, but, um, but this is the Mindhunter TV series, which is now in its second season. But we, we thought it made sense just to sort of go back to square one and start at season one episode one and sort of go through it as we imagine a lot of people 
are uh, either discovering the series now or are just starting on season two right now. Right. Um, it stars uh, John Groff as Holden Ford, our fictionalized John Douglas. Uh, Holt McCallany as Bill Tench, his uh, partner who's based on Bob or Robert Ressler. Uh, right. Anna Torv is Wendy Carr, their psychologist, who's based on um, what's the woman that she's Anne, based on? Ann Burgess. Ann Burgess. And I think most of the other characters who aren't serial killers are largely fictionalized. Right, or maybe they're composite type characters, but they're not based on a specific uh, person. Um, and uh, season one starts off in the long ago year of 1977. Yeah. And they, I don't know where they found out like, you know, like a 1976 Ford Nova in pristine condition. I mean, a Chevy Nova and, and all these other like, you know, cars they're driving around in that look incredibly pristine. That was probably tougher than uh, all the rest of the special effects. You know, I've said this, I think, before in some of our other podcasts. Unfortunately, Peter and I are old enough to remember the 70s. <clears throat> and, you know, I, I, something that, like, is a pet peeve of mine is when people make the 70s look stupid. You know, like, they, they make it look more florid than it was. Like, in the 70s, people didn't walk around in platform shoes with goldfish in them or disco suits. Like, it wasn't Speak like for that. yourself. Right. But, like, it's very, very easy to overdo the 70s uh, and make them look excessive in a way that they weren't. And one of the things that really grabbed me about this series is how realistic the 70s looks. Like, these people look normal to me. Their clothes look normal. Their haircuts look normal. Their cars look normal, right? The, the desk chairs in their offices look normal. Like, that's what I remember the world looking like. I mean, and I was the just, lighting, yeah. and even more particularly, like, you know, the lighting doesn't look theatrical and it doesn't look staged. And, you know, look, the, the, this, this episode was directed by, by David Fincher, who's a very, very well-known Hollywood director who made... Early on, made seven, made um, one of the alien movies. Made, I mean, he's made a ton of movies. Um, right, and and in addition, he also made The Nick, right, a TV series we've discussed over at uh, Popcorn no, Drink was, Combo. That was Soderbergh. I think. Oh, you know what? You're right. That was Soderbergh. I take it back. Yeah. Totally wrong there. Um, but uh, but the upshot is, um, you know, they because they put you in a very realistic 70s, the fact that it's a 70s helps the story as opposed to distracting you. You right. know, like it's not that 70s show where everything is done to be ridiculous. I thought that was a drama. <laughs> um, should we get into the episode? Or is there anything else you want to say about it? And as we go through the episodes, we'll sort of compare and contrast with John Douglas's real life story. Yeah, I mean, um, basically, the, there's a lot packed into this episode, and it's it it gives a background about what the FBI was like, and it's in a period of transition after um, uh, Hoover died several years earlier, and it was basically an all boys club and rather racist all boys club, and rather you know, Midwestern white racist all boys club. <laughs> and, oh. um, and uh, it's just sort of starting to change and Holden Ford um, 
is he's been in long enough. He's clearly sort of been in the FBI probably for, I don't know, several years. He's, yeah, had he's supposed time. to be a junior guy who did some time in Detroit. Right. He, but he's spent enough time where he has some skills. He's sent to teach at Quantico at the Academy. And he, uh, as a hostage negotiator, he gets the idea to try to think about criminality from a, from an investigational or sort of scientific um, or a theoretical standpoint rather than, you and know, a, just and a little bit of an empathic point of view. Like you can't, you can't figure out the killer unless you can see his point of view. Right. I mean, the background is they're saying that motive used to be very comprehensible in that somebody killed someone for money or they killed someone because they were angry. And now this is just after the son of Sam killings in New York that we were totally random. Um, you know, David Berkowitz came upon uh, people who were making out in cars and shot them and he had no connection to them. It was completely random crime. And in the, in the shadow of, I think that sort of congealed the, the idea. Um, it made people feel sort of frightened and it made them feel how random crime was in the setting of a time that's after Vietnam, that's after Watergate, Right. The, uh, after the, the country assassination, Manson, Manson, right, and then and then the son of Sam, and you know, basically, they just feel like they don't have a grip on on what motivates a criminal at this point. So the, you know, this whole episode from start to finish is an exercise, I think, in the negative. Like the whole point of this episode, in every instance, is to highlight their shortcomings which serves to sort of illustrate the scope of the problem that they're facing, right? So our opening scene in Pennsylvania is, is Holden is called uh, to some sort of industrial site because a man who is psychotic has taken his co-workers hostage and Holden is called in to negotiate with him. Um, right. And, you know, it, it's made clear that, that Holden, despite his good intentions, he really has no idea how to approach the problem and the police like holding his contrast with the police who respond to the hostage taker by threatening him. Whereas, you know, Holden is presented as thoughtful, but very inexperienced, right? Uh, the, the killer's wife conveys to us that he's psychotic. He's talking to people. Um, and you know, the, the scene where the, the hostage taker, he's got a shotgun and he's holding it to a woman and the scene crescendos where uh, Holden says to him, maybe I can help. And the guy says, I don't think so. And he puts the shotgun under his chin and pulls the trigger and essentially decapitates himself. Right. Um, and then the whole scene is symbolically represented when Holden goes back to his apartment. He takes off his jacket and puts it on the back of the chair and it falls on the floor. And like that scene encompasses the entire first episode, right? They, they don't even know how to begin to talk to these people or, or, or how to understand their thinking. Right. And, but the fact that, that he, he had a couple of, you know, maybe a couple of valid attempts to approach that situation properly, but on the whole, he really didn't expect the guy to kill himself. And because and he considered it a massive failure, but he's sitting in his boss's office, I guess, presumably the guy who's the head of the hostage negotiation team back at, uh, in, in DC, 
or in Virginia. And um, the guy's super happy because he says, you know, this is, this is really not a bad outcome. I mean, nobody, no, we measure it as, as, as victims, um, you know, uh, as, as the hostages or innocent bystanders being hurt or, or killed. And, you know, he keeps trying to tell Holden that you really did great. And Holden doesn't feel that way at all. And I think they're trying to sort of, they're contrasting. It's the earliest sort of inkling that maybe Holden's thinking about the fact that he doesn't know how to do things really well. And, and that it doesn't, whereas the, the traditional FBI way is shoot them purely. Well, it's purely based on results. Maybe they're not, they're not cavemen entirely, but it doesn't matter whether you understand something about the criminal or not. The fact is the ends justified the means. And he had, a, the result was that the, this crazy guy uh, shot himself um, that doesn't matter. Everybody else got out alive. Right. And, and it's also sort of explicitly made clear that the FBI is much more geared to John Dillinger or Al Capone right, right. than the son of Sam. Like they don't, they, they don't know what to do with the son of Sam, who, by the way, who is shown on the cover of Time magazine uh, yeah. passing. In the waiting room. And, you know, and after Holden has that meeting with his boss where he kind of gets a, a little bit of a pat on the back, he gets put in class to teach, which is it's made explicitly clear that that's a vote of no confidence in him. Right. He kind of gets taken out of the field and they have him giving lectures to the other FBI agents and trainees, which is clearly not a plum assignment. And he, get, he doesn't get a lot of respect from his students. Yeah. I, I, I'm not sure, you know, he, he takes it that way, but, I, I'm not entirely sure how bad an assignment it is. I, I guess that recruiting kind of is considered terrible. Well, and I think it's also implied that it doesn't lead anywhere. You know what I'm saying? He's not going to have yeah. a big bust or a big, you know, he's not going to catch a big criminal giving lectures. Like the implication is it's a pat on the head and they can put him somewhere and he gets a salary. But, you know, he's the arc of his trajectory as an FBI agent is, is not in a good direction. Right. And then he comes across another lecturer, this guy Rathman, right, who is thinking in some ways about the same problems, but is much less sophisticated and savvy. And for example, you know, he mocks the idea that Berkowitz's dog told him what to do. And in fact, you know, that was a, an important clue about uh, Berkowitz's psychosis, right? And, and he's supposed to be another lecturer and he, he's doesn't really understand enough of the topic, although the two of them go out for a drink and it, it turns out that he's actually a fairly bright guy who, you know, just doesn't have a lot of great tools at his disposal to try to solve these problems. Right. He's a little fatalistic about trying to get the FBI to, to move in a, a direction, a sort of a little bit more intellectual direction. And then, um, he ends up at a, at a bar. I think this is after Rathman leaves him. He ends up at a bar where he meets um, his sort of anti-parallel or opposite number character, right? Uh, Debbie Mitford, his future girlfriend, who's a psychology grad student and very much uh, comfortable in the counterculture, whereas he's described as dressing like a Mormon. By the way, Hannah Gross is beautiful as Debbie in this show. 
I'm just going to yeah. throw that out there. Yeah. She's a, she's a sociologist and she starts talking about Durkheim and about academic sociology and he's never heard of any of it, but somehow he's, he's genuine and he, you know, he's clearly a bright guy and they, they have a connection even though they're, they're, on the surface, uh, polar opposites in some ways. And, and they're drawn and in a lot of ways to, to look like extreme opposites. You know, he's only shown driving around in these clunky American government vehicles. He drives a VW bug. His apartment is pristine and orderly and hers is, you know, you know, filled with water bongs and wrinkled mattress, like wrinkled sheets and blankets on a dirty mattress kind of thing. Right. He wears a starch suit at all times. Right. She, she takes him to see dog day afternoon. Like when they, when, you know, you know that that was her pick for a movie, you know? Right. But he loves it. He does love it. And also, you know, and I think that she recognizes something appealing in him and the way that he sees something appealing in her, uh, but the the gulf between them is big, and sometimes as the show goes on, we'll see that they, you know, they struggle to bridge the gulf between them. Yeah, and largely based on his interactions with her, he decides to go to school, uh, right. and take some psychology classes, and he 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 doesn't really get permission to get a degree; he gets permission to audit them. Right. At least he gets permission to go to UVA and go see. And and part of the negotiated settlement that he has with the with the, his boss is that he's going to try to recruit people because apparently, uh, guess what? In the time of um, sort of American uh, skept- mass skepticism uh, about government and culture, nobody wants to join the FBI. Uh, basically, the people that, you know, that tried to follow the Kennedys who, what they make a reference. It's like, you know, uh, basically they're just very, they have an incredibly negative, um, public image, um, at this point. So they're not exactly recruiting too many people. So part of the reason that he's going to the university that he's allowed to go is to try to try to recruit some agents and also maybe give a little intelligence about what the subversives in the university are up to. <laughs> well, and, and, you know, he shows up in a suit and tie when everybody else is dressed in seventies casual. And it's, you know, this, the other students are distant from him. Like he tries to reach out to one of his professors who will literally have nothing to do with him. Like the guy, you know, packs up his bag and gets up and very briskly walks away after dismissing him. That's a great scene. When he invites the professor to give a talk to the FBI. Yeah. I actually really like that scene. Um, You know, he goes there, he sits down next to him in the library and the guy's incredibly defensive right away and says, everybody knows who you are. And he says, you know, look, I'm just trying to talk to you about um, criminal psychology and, you know, I'm from, you know, for, I, I teach at Quantico and <laughs> he, he gets the chilliest possible reception. He, he basically gets an incredibly suspicious um, reception. And, you know, his, you know, they contrast that scene with, you know, he's kind of damned if he does and he damned if he doesn't. Like he's not welcome at the University of Virginia, right? It's UVA, I believe. And he's also not really welcome in class. And they show him sort of struggling in class with his FBI students who kind of, kind of mouth off to him. And they, they're like, why are we wasting our time with this? Like, he's not getting respect 
anywhere, you know, essentially except from his girlfriend, he's, he's not getting a lot of buy-in and he's, he's really struggling. Right. He's getting more than respect from his girlfriend, which probably helps. <laughs> he gets hooked up with Bill Tench, who uh, does roadshow classes to local cops on a very sort of dumbed down version of sort of um, behavioral science for cops. Um, and he yeah. ends up going along with Bill. Um, uh, we see the first of these road shows that, you know, uh, the cops are kind of hostile to. You know, the cops are not interested in trying to get inside the mind of a killer. You know, modern audiences are used to this from, you know, 20 plus years of CSI and other shows and Thomas Harris books. But, you know, it's made very clear that when he suggests that you know, maybe we could think about it from their perspective or maybe Manson turned out the way he was because of the way that he interacted with, you know, the, the legal system. You know, he gets a lot of hard pushback. And oh, yeah. These are not uh, sensitive, empathic guys. These are beat cops in small towns who want peace and quiet and want to make arrests. Yeah, and, uh, you know, Tench has been doing it for a while and he knows how to smooth over the rough edges a little bit. He knows how to interact with them a little better so that maybe if they're skeptical, he's still able to uh, kind of at least keep things together enough that they don't, they're not openly hostile to him. Whereas uh, Holden Ford is much more idealistic. He's not experienced talking to the local cops that much. And he rubs them the wrong way immediately. Right. And he, you know, he, he ends up coming off as an inexperienced know-it-all, which is a bad combination. Right. And you know, he, they play it well because he's not, he's, he seems partly like that, but he also, you see his intentions and he, he's not a buffoon. I mean, he, he's trying to find middle ground with them. He just, he's, he doesn't know how to do it yet. So it's not, um, it's not so cut and dried that, you know, um, that, that, he, that he really is acting uh, high and mighty. He's, he's being superior, looking down his nose at them. Um, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't do that. Um, he's really trying to feel his way through this, this, the new concept and, and talk to them about it at the same time because he doesn't really fully get what he's uh, what he wants to achieve yet. And then the episode wraps up with them in Iowa where this, this sort of bad encounter with the local cops goes. And uh, one particular detective gives them an extremely hard time sort of contradicting some of what they're saying about Manson or not really buying into it because he was an L.A. cop who had some knowledge of the Manson case, even though he didn't work it. But this same detective afterwards approaches them at a diner and asks them for help in a, a, a case where a, a young boy and his mother were, were essentially assaulted, sexually assaulted and murdered. And, you know, the, at least to my watching of it, you know, the case is shown to be complex with a lot of sort of angles and symbology to it. And very, very quickly Holden realizes that they don't have the tools to help the local detective. And, the, the scene sort of goes from Holden free spinning a couple of ideas about 
aspects of the case and the killing that maybe they could look into to him sort of shutting down and telling the local detective, we can't help you and walking out of the room. Right. Uh, you know, he, I guess maybe he runs up against his own ignorance for the first time in his own mind and realizes that he can't do it. And maybe he's afraid of, you know, another big failure like we saw at the beginning of the episode with the hostage situation. It seems like it's, it's the moment where things come to a head for him conceptually because he, he's had, throughout the episode to this point, he's struggled to sort of have an idea about what they don't know. Um, you know, what, we sh- what they should be doing to understand criminality. And, and especially criminality in, this, in, in a setting where the motivation for the murder or the crime is not, is not evident. Um, and like a, a strange, you know, serial killer type, type murder. Um, and and th- here it comes to a head because he's supposed to be the expert and he's supposed to be helping this local cop with a very disturbing murder, um, murder and sexual assault. And he realizes as he's sort of shooting theories or spinning theories that he's the expert. And yet, you know, he has no idea what to tell this guy. And he doesn't know where to begin. Like he doesn't know how to give him anything concrete that would help him solve the case. No, it's, it's like he really, he finally realizes how, uh, you know, what, how ignorant they are and that Bill Tench and him are, are supposed to, you know, they're supposed to be helping this guy and they don't even have the first place to start. And I think it's, it's so crushing. The, the clarity of that moment is very crushing to him. And then the, the show, the episode ends with him and Bill arguing in the car. Yeah. And he's still trying to convince Bill of the scope of his problem. Like, like how are we going to do this? All right. How do we, how do we help these guys? I think Bill is not worried about the, the grand scope the way Holden is. You know, Bill has been doing this roadshow for a while. He, his career is probably, this is probably about as far as he's going to get. Yeah, Bill is easily supposed to be 20 years older. Yeah, he's, he's well into his career. He's, pro- he's certainly, if not imminently retiring, he's, he's a good way there. He's probably, you know, got five years, 10 years, and he's, he's done. I like the way that, I'm foreshadowing a little bit here, but I like the way that Bill is portrayed as kind of like a, a quote-unquote regular guy and sort of like a, you know, almost like a caricature of like a, you know, a, a 70s middle-aged guy. And as the show goes on, like Bill gets a lot more depth and we find out a lot more about him and he's not such a one-dimensional guy, but they don't, there's no hint of that in this episode. In this episode, you know, he's, he's kind of shown to be a guy who likes to sit by the pool and drink a beer in a suit after work. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe the only hint is that he's pretty sophisticated in terms of the way he deals with the, the local police and he, he has a reasonably sophisticated concept of what they're supposed to be doing with them. Yeah. And he, and he can speak the language of the cops in a way that Holden can't. Yeah. He, he's, he's no dummy. I mean, that, that to me is the only sort of um, the only hint, I guess that, that he's going to turn out to be quite a, quite a good um, partner for Holden. Um, 
is that he, he, he appreciates what he's trying to do, even if he's, he's a bit bored with it, let's say. And, you know, in the way that Debbie is his opposite in many ways, so is Bill. Like, you know, Bill and Debbie are very much drawn to be contrast to Holden. And yeah. all their scenes work because of that. Yeah. Um, it's shot very, very well. Like, it's not shot like a TV show. It, by the way, it, it just shows you how far Netflix has pushed things. You know, like Netflix, Netflix has, if not stolen the mantle of top TV producing agency from HBO, they're sharing it with them. You yeah. know what I'm saying? And like, this is slicker and more polished than virtually anything on TV. And you can see it in other Netflix shows. Like it's really impressive to me. I mean, this is, it's, it's shot and written and scored in a sort of cinematic way. Like it doesn't feel like a TV show. Yeah. I mean, I saw a little bit of interview with the, with the cat, the three principals in the cast and they talked about, the interviewer asked them, um, do you, is it because it's television? Do you do, do you, do you work faster than you do on film or was David Fincher working as if it were film? And they said that he, it was just like a feature film. He did a lot of setups. They did a lot of takes so you could have a lot of material to edit with. And, uh, they said that, you know, it was treated very seriously and was not um, slapdash in the way that I guess, you know, TV shows have to keep to more of a schedule uh, because they're, um, you know, they have to make a lot of episodes, right? Right. Although here they don't. I mean, the first season uh, of this show is uh, how many episodes? Ten. First season? Ten, episodes. Season Ten hours. Yeah. Right. The second season is nine episodes. But, you know, yeah. it, it's uh, to take it back to the 70s, you know, when in the 70s, a season of television was 25 or 30 episodes. You know, now a modern eight. show is eight to 13. You know, that's about as big as it gets. Like, I just finished watching the final season of Orange is the New Black also on Netflix. And, you know, that's 13 episodes. And it felt, it felt like a lot. 13 right. shows. Right. And they're one hour shows with, and they're really one hour shows. They're not, um, they're, they're not, not 38 or 42 yeah, minutes. Sure. Right. Right. And, uh, and you know, uh, they are, and the production values, as you just said, are, are incredibly, incredibly high. So, um, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's incredibly impressive to me, the whole thing. Yeah, it's good looking and very high production values, very well made. Even the opening sequence with the tape recorder with these not quite subliminal flashes of bodies and uh, rather disturbing opening that clearly was very carefully put together, presumably by David Fincher. You know, it reminds me of, I'm going to make a Star Trek reference surprise <laughs> um it reminds me of the whole episode a little bit reminds me of there's a um, there's a star trek episode called journey to babel um where uh, kirk and company have to solve a murder and and they're kind of ill-equipped to do it you know like they're they're equipped to fight the klingons with with the with the enterprise they're not so equipped to solve a murder and and um kirk is talking to an andorian ambassador named shras and he says to Kirk, he says, passion and gain, those are motives for murder. Like, that's how you look. <laughs> and like, you know, like from that, that comment, like you can see that reflected here. And this show is about passion. 
right? These are yeah. killers. These are killers doing what they do because of, you know, forces that drive them that are beyond their control, right? Right. And 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 in this episode, Holden realizes that he doesn't understand their passions at all. Right. Well, you know, the other thing it reminds me of is uh, to make a, a Thomas Harris reference is in um, it's in the book and it's also in, I think, one of the movie versions of Red Dragon, which is the prequel novel to Silence of the Lambs, uh, which actually was written first. Um, in, in that book, um, the character Will Graham, who caught Hannibal Lecter, there's a great scene where they're talking, you know, and Lecter is in prison and Lecter says to Graham, do you think you're smarter than I am? And Graham says, no, I'm not smarter than you are. And he says, well, how did you catch me? Um, and Graham says, well, you have disadvantages. And Lecter says, what disadvantages do I have? And Graham says, we well, are insane. <laughs> and it's a great little moment because Lecter is forced like for a second to be like, ah, he got me on that one. You know, like he did have True that. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a great scene. And it's the same idea of the FBI agent, you know, having to deal with somebody who, despite all their other, you know, qualities and skills is still governed over by this, this passion that gives them both strength and can be their undoing. Right. Um, it's a very strong opening to the series. You know, I wasn't sure that this show was going to get renewed because it was almost two years between when it came out as the first season and yeah. the second season's release. And I don't know the story behind that. We should look it up, but I wonder if Netflix wasn't sure they wanted to do it. Yeah. And it got very strong, favorable, critical, uh, a critical uh, reception. Um, and uh, I'm just, you know, it's hard. You can't really get um, ratings for Netflix series. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's not, it's proprietary. Yeah. Um, I yeah. I don't know how, I don't know how well it did. It's also, you know, it's a different model. They're not getting paid per episode or per advertisers. They're just making money from subscriptions. But right. you know, when it came out, you know, you actually pointed it out to me. Like I had, yeah. you know, I was like, oh, that's interesting. And then you had said, oh, you should watch it. And then I, I turned it on and then I, I, I'm not a binge watcher at all. Like I purposely dole shows out over a long period of time so I don't overdo it. And I binged the first five episodes in one day. And I remember at the end of the day, I was like, wow, I watched half the season. You know, I don't usually do that. So it, it says the guy who read the entire book. For after and standing in the gift shop. Right, that's true. But he doesn't binge. <laughs> well, I don't binge television shows. <laughs> but it is true that I did read the whole book in the gift shop and then I slinked out. <laughs> Listen, the only other person in the gift shop was the dozing volunteer at the candy counter. <laughs> right. I, I believe her, her eyeglasses were on a, a chain around her neck. Yes, she had a cardigan. A <laughs> blue cardigan, <laughs> like her hair, also. <laughs> um, should we wrap there for episode one? Anything yep. else? No, we'll be back for the next one. It's, this, is a, this is a great start to a very interesting uh, series. Yeah, so again, uh, we're going to be doing uh, an episode uh, of the podcast and every episode of the show. Uh, and as we said earlier, check out um, our, our other podcasts like we talked about. And you can always email us at popcorndrinkcombo at gmail.com. Yes, and next episode, probably the most acclaimed character in the series, Edmund Kemper, uh, shows up. Yeah. All right, till then. Okay, take care. All right, thanks.